Are you ready, Joe? You bet. Hello? Hey, is this Charles? Yeah, hey. Hey, this is Christian. Hey, Christian, how are you? I'm doing great, and, uh... And Joe. Hey, Joe. Hi. I'm a little starstruck. (laughs) Why? To to talk to you, because you're the author of The Forgotten Foundation of Heart and Sacks. Oh, nice. You like that? I, I, I more than like it. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get all fanboy on you, but boy. Oh, that's awesome. And one thing I was wondering about as I was reading the paper we're talking about today is, like, I feel like, you know, is, is the legal process our law? Um, Oh, yeah. That's a um, good question. It is, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think so, basically. Me too. But I, but, but I guess I'm getting a little bit ahead of us. Hi. Um, (laughs) Hi. Uh, So how do, how does this work? We we I just go. Have, oh, have, have we figured this out yet? Have we figured it's out? Funny, no. It's funny. Hear your voices. I've been listening to you for the, you know last couple of weeks. Nice. Yeah. Well, we always appreciate new listeners. If you have been listening to us, of course, you know that one of the most significant problems we now face is how to pronounce your family name. Oh yeah, I did listen to the one about Bode about that. Um, uh, the, I pronounce it Barzan. Oh really. Yeah. <laughs> you sound surprised, Christian. I, what, what would you have said? I, we should have see. We 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 ruined it. We yeah, should just, we didn't we do a delete, test first. We should delete that section of the tape. No, no, and no. then I will we'll pretend. And so, what would you have guessed, Joe? Seriously, um, Barzun is what I would have guessed. I would have guessed Barzun. Hmm. Yeah, a lot of people say Barzun. It, now, is that is it? What's the what? What is the kind of ethnic well, origin like, of the name? Like your interpretation, which I don't know if it's been confirmed or not, but your interpretation of Bode's name, it's French. Hmm. There, there is a famous philosopher named uh, Barzon, isn't, isn't there? Oh, what, yes, what, Jacques. Can Jacques you say, Barzon. Can you say that again? Barzon. <laughs> yeah, Barzon. It yeah, would, I'd, be, I'd do better if I had a cigarette and a piece of cheese. Oh, but, boy. Um, not in my house. Not in my house. Not in my house, you don't. <laughs> uh, so, uh, no relation, right? He's my grandfather. Oh, he is. Okay. Whoa. Wow. Yeah, I have a copy of his book somewhere on my shelf. The, so uh, much, So much more of reality makes sense right now. <laughs> if he were in an interview he might say yeah yeah uh you know charles is my son is my grandson or, or he might say i'm charles's grandfather nice you see what i'm yeah, saying yeah that's unlikely I, but that's a nice idea i mean you're making a name for yourself here this is a really good piece oh thank you one of many as i think i've already made clear you have made clear <laughs> um how, how do we even want to get into this i don't know <laughs> yeah at some point we're just gonna have to ask him how awesome it is to be him because oh. i'm kind of wondering <laughs> This is uh, a lot. This is a lot of puffery at the beginning. I think it's almost unfair to Charles. <laughs> it no, but, but it's it's good that I've listened to your show before because now I know you do. You, you say this to all the guests. That's right. Well, uh, I guess that's true. We don't. He, he, he never says it to me. <laughs> although although he does. He, Joe is actually a very generous person and is able to find, except when he's unable, mm. the, be- the best in in everybody and celebrates that best. Unless he's unable to find it, and then he celebrates the worst. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that a fair appraisal i i suppose uh, it, so do you go by charles charles yeah i go by charles let's start where you start uh, the project which is the chief justice rather ostentatiously uh made this quip about you know kant and bulgarian evidence law or something of that ilk uh, and so there's this uh recent kind of scratching the itch of the the divide between uh legal scholars and practicing lawyers and and the bench um and it's something that comes up it seems to come up every so often 
some judge will write something bemoaning this. It's Harry Edwards at one point. It's, you know, various people. Uh, and and it looks like you think that moment is a revealing moment in terms of this, the the specific topics that you're engaging with. So what do you what do you make of that recurring split and why it's important if it is important? I do think that uh, that uh, that it is it relates to the the particular issue that I take up in the paper. Um, I, I ascribe to the the um, the authors whom I'm criticizing this kind of ambition that you know the the their having worked for Chief Justice Roberts makes that makes a connection sort of available. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure that they would accept it. I mean, I think they might say, "Oh, it has nothing to do with that." Um, they might think that my you know, introduction where I suggest that is, is bizarre. Um, but I do think it, I guess be partly because I think that I think all law professors, uh, struggle with it in one way or another with the, 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 uh, alleged, I guess it's not alleged. There is a certain detachment between what courts, the kind of information that courts are wanting, uh, and what law professors uh, provide, there are a lot. There is a big overlap, right? A lot of, uh, and I mean, I mentioned this in the paper. A lot of um, uh, law professors write stuff that courts do cite, um, but there is, I think, a kind of anxiety that has been true for many decades now uh, about what the proper relationship is, what it is that legal academics really properly should be doing, who should they be speaking to. Is that a kind of um, um, failure that law professors are mostly speaking to each other. Uh, you hear that as a kind of indictment for people from people like Posner, for instance. Um, but maybe that you know. But then other people respond, well, that's how academic, you know, that's how scholarly discourse takes place in any discipline. So is that just normal? Uh, so I'm interested in those questions about a kind of audience and what the purpose of legal scholarship is. It's funny, isn't it? How there's there's one anxiety that that you and Joe are just talking about the anxiety of the academic mission in, in law, as opposed to say other disciplines, scientific or, or, or cultural and the anxiety that, that judges and lawyers experience in practice of grounding their judgments, right? What are the ultimate grounds for things? Mm. How can we say that, that we are doing something which is legitimate, you know, with this power that we have been in, invested with and that anxiety is you know maybe maybe nowhere more apparent than in constitutional interpretation, mm-hmm. but also in all forms of interpretation. So your paper in particular is about um, uh, is, is about this interpretation question, and in particular, you know, is there a solution in positive law? Meaning, it, or can we find some some grounding in positivism? We, we can talk more in a second for a for a definitive answer to the question: How should we interpret? And and. I say definitive answer, not as though it will resolve every interpretive disagreement, but it will. It, but but a definitive answer to the question of like what general methodology should we turn to in order to to interpret? And it's funny, isn't it, how uh, you pair these two anxieties in this paper, right? The mm-hmm. that that we have these scholars who are attempting to kind of soothe the one anxiety while kind of at a meta level soothing the academic anxiety at the same time. Yeah, I think I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I think it, what I the way I frame it is kind of from two directions. They they're trying to, on the one hand, uh, look to positive law, kind of what lawyers do as a source, an intellectual guide in a sense, uh, but also tr- trying to show the relevance of more abstract theorizing for what it is that lawyers do. So, in my view of it, it's it's a kind of bringing bringing together from from two different directions, sort of a building a bridge or a healing a breach. Yeah, sort of idea. And and it's and I take it that the 
at least what what you're describing in the introduction is is the notion that this um this looking to positive law to see if it might give us a grounding for interpretive questions such as constitutional interpretation uh th- that the that some of the hunger for that the the desire to turn to that um it comes from a kind of exhaustion or a feeling of of uh, being trapped in a standstill with these uh, debates about other ways we might resolve interpretive questions. Yep, I think that's exactly right. So, what is that? What is the stand? I mean, maybe help help listeners understand that sort of that standstill or that sense of exhaustion um, that that you're ascribing to the authors and or that you're just trying to describe yourself. Okay. Yeah. No. So this, I think, I think I can. I hope I can say it relatively uh, uh, simply. The, the in constitutional theory, there are lots of uh, debates that academics engage in that extend beyond what the particular legal questions are to particular legal questions, even constitutional ones, and they debate broader questions about what the appropriate method of interpretation ought to be. Ought we look to the original intentions of the drafters of the Constitution? Ought we look to the original understandings of those who were around during the drafting of the Constitution? Should we think of the Constitution as a living document? Think about it on a kind of common law model of uh, adjudication. And these kinds of questions are typically debated in normative terms. They talk about why a certain kind of understanding of constitutional interpretation is better, is more consistent with the rule of law or uh, better vindicates our democratic principles or is be- something better suited to how judges decide cases. Uh, and then people also make arguments uh, uh uh, conceptual or interpretive arguments that talk about what interpretation necessarily requires, what authority, the kind of authoritative nature of law, what that necessarily entails, and what the authors I'm talking about, um, uh, Professors Bode and Sachs, argue is that we should put those debates aside and just focus on what the what it is that the positive law, uh, what our actual doctrine tells us about how to interpret the Constitution. And my basic point is not much, or at least not much without also uh, engaging in these same debates that they want to cast aside, uh, conceptual debates about the nature of authority and, and normative questions about what values, what principles are the most important for constitutional decision-making. Can, can I put a slightly different spin on that, just a, a sure. initial setup? Um, so as an example, if we get a case, and suppose we haven't decided Roe against Wade yet, and we, we get a case about the constitutionality of a, a, an abortion ban, our very first question is like, you know, as justices, what are we going to write down? What kinds of arguments can we make? Um, to what should they refer? And one group of justices might think, well, we need to go back and study, you know, the, the framers wrote down these words and the reframers uh, around the time of the Civil War wrote down these other words. And what we need to do is go back and figure out what they what they meant by those words, either by and we've got a whole bunch of different techniques we can do that by. Right? We can look at kind of the legislative history of the Constitution. We can look at uh, public meaning, you know, what how the public would have taken such words at that time. We can use dictionaries. We can use canons. We all kinds of things we can do to do that, which all describe different sorts of originalist theories. We might also engage in what you call that 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 kind of common law constitutionalism and and think about how uh, women's rights have evolved over time and and rights of privacy and we we, we may take a different tack and um, the question is like you know once we take those different tacks to interpretation uh, how do we know who's right you know because we're not, we're no longer applying the same theory and coming to different results we're we're starting with different theories and so if we're starting with different theories how are we going to argue about who's correct and I take it that the uh, that the project of the um, positive originalist, the inclusive 
um, the inclusive originalists, as, as, as they call themselves, is to say that there actually is a rule to tell us which of these is the right way to do it. Now, that rule may not be written down anywhere, just like Hart's rule of recognition is not written down anywhere, and yet we still know how to do the law and we know from our practices. So they, they say there actually is authority for determining which of those theories for resolving the abortion ban is correct. And the challenge for legal philosophy and for lawyers is to, uh, is to identify that rule better. And they have an argument that that rule, in fact, is originalism. I think that's, I think that's right. And what I try to distinguish between is the two different arguments. One is their assertion that positive law can deliver us an answer. And the second is that that answer is originalism. Right. And so even if they're, what I was trying to do is, is actually even attack the, the, the first part, which is not just that they're wrong, that originalism is the answer, but that the very idea that we can, we can get an answer by looking to quote positive law. That's where we certainly agree. I mean, we, I, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. that that's irrelevant, but that you can't, that it's more than that, that you can't, and maybe, and it'll be interesting. I mean, maybe they would concede that maybe they would say, Oh, we're not saying that it's only positive law, but if they're not saying that it's only positive law, then it's hard to see what the contribution is because again, the whole point is that we should stop having these debates about democracy and rule of law and all these things that people argue about and focus on something that lawyers worry about the actual law. And my only point is just that, well, if it, it, may, it may involve actual law as well, positive facts about what courts have decided or what is written in certain kinds of legal sources or texts, but it also requires uh, uh, engaging in conceptual and normative argumentation. So you don't sidestep the need for normative argumentation and all that by taking this uh, turn in the positivist direction. Um, the reason that I asked about that sense of exhaustion or that sense of, of deadlock that may have led them to, uh, might lead anyone to seek this uh, alternative strategy of positivism is because we did, I don't know if you've heard the episode where we talked to, uh, to and I'm blanking on their names, um, Kessler. Oh, yeah, it? yeah, yeah. I did listen to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, so Kessler the, and Posen. Yeah, the working. The cyclical theory of, yeah, yeah. Correct. And the, the sort of theories working themselves impure. And in a way, it's, uh, they're, they're sort of, cyclical model for public law theorizing suggests that th there um that this positive turn is reflective of a moment in mm -hmm. the development of various approaches to these interpretive questions and uh and maybe the fact that in a subsequent moment <laughs> there, there's a realization that there's some things the theory can't do and uh you know it just seemed to me to put it in a maybe a slightly different look at it from a slightly different angle um, to suggest that that, again, we can understand why someone might turn to some other strategy. But but one might also wonder whether it's sort of doomed to fail the strategy of uh, of gosh, there's this whole set of concerns and issues and cares that people have. And we just want to we just want to lay them all down on the ground and walk away and go do something else. Right. Because uh, we no longer think that's satisfactory. I feel like it's relatable in a way. Yeah, no, I think it is. And of course, they talk about, I mean, they mention them. But the point is that it no longer is serving the original rationale, is the idea. 
right? That it was that originalism, for instance, was designed to constrain judges. That was the whole point. And yet they're offering a form of originalism that is so capacious that it no longer does so. That's the working impure part of, of the yes, theory, exactly. right? That, okay, that, exactly. that in order to like in order, you know, there's an insurgent theory, which is pure. And in order to make gains and gain acceptance, it has to kind of enlarge the tent over time. And by enlarging the tent, you make you kind of water down the theory and you you, right. you allow more things to count as originalism or to count as originalist arguments. So it's almost like, you know, Richard Rorty in in uh, sort of his his really famous book in the 70s about, you know, uh, this sort of pragmatic creed occur like let's just stop talking about certain things <laughs> it's just not helpful it's not productive it doesn't do anything good uh philosophy needs to just wrap up a whole list of stuff put it down on the ground and just leave sounds like a form of marriage counseling <laughs> <laughs> one word for that um for that general kind of turn is a, is a quietism Right? You remain quiet about a particular domain. You don't even try to ask questions about it. Yeah, and you're and so you're there's a portion of your paper after you go and talk about various uh what look like very well known positivist approaches one might take, you know, Hart, uh um now I'm gonna blank on everyone's name. Uh, Raz, Gary Scott Shapiro. Yeah, Shapiro, Raz, 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 Shapiro right. And yeah. you say, look, let's just in a way the most intriguing th- one to me, because in a way it felt like the most consistent with with the Bode and Sachs idea at this underlying level, right, was the last mm-hmm. one, which mm-hmm. is, yeah. look, let's just be pragmatists and right. not and try to theorize as little as possible. Right? I feel as though that we need to back up just a minute. I feel like we need to at least say what the what the what the Bode argument is about the what is the positivist argument that originalism is is not only kind of the best thing to choose, the best interpretive method to choose, because the, again, the basic problem is there's nothing in the Constitution or in our other written law that that tells us how to interpret that document, right? right. Although not, it would be interesting to wonder, even if there were something right. in there, how, what what that. And would I've be written like. about that. Like, there still would not be something telling you how to interpret that. So there's always going to be a primitive right. level, right? But, but regardless, there's, yeah. yeah, there's there's nothing that tells you what method to use, even even at that level of just the method of interpretation, and. And so you're going to need a theory of what that interpretation is. Okay. And not only do they argue that originalism is the best way to interpret, but that in fact it's compelled by rule. And so you need a theory of law which tells you, like, you know, well, what, what is this thing that we're doing that would identify some kind of rule within that system, even though it's not written down, that would tell you that in fact yeah. originalism is compelled by that rule. And then originalism is compelled by a kind of authority. So do you – I don't know, Charles, do you want to kind of summarize what their argument is for why there is such a rule compelling originalism as the method of choice? It's a little bit tricky, because, and this is one of the points that I try to, to, to make in the paper, is it operates a little bit, it, sometimes it seems like two different levels, and part of my point yeah. is to get them to, part of my aim is to get them to clarify which one is sort of the more important part of their project. Because on the one hand, they sort of nominally cite Hart and say, oh, well, what our law is depends on modern social facts, which is kind of legal philosophical lingo for uh, what courts do today, right? Law, What law is, if you're a positivist, is a fact of the matter. It is what the rules that are enforced by, you know, you, they used to talk about the command of the sovereign, but then it sort of fo- more focused on what courts do. Uh, and what uh, Hart talked about is the so-called rule of recognition, which is a kind of practice of courts, what what it is that courts are doing and what they take to be valid law. Okay, so there, that's on the one hand, they say, that's how we should resolve our debates about what the correct interpretive principles are. Then they, they also offer as a substantive matter, a, uh, uh, the view that, well, what our law really requires is validation from the founding. 
that what our interpretive rules should be uh, should be kind of um, uh, validated by or authorized by whatever what the law whatever the law was at the time of the founding because that's our you know original event um, that that begins our legal system um, and it's the relationship between those two those two kinds of claims that it's a little bit in tension because one looks at one directs attention to the present right about what it is that courts do and the other directs attention to the past what the law was at the time of the founding and that's just a consequence of the fact that we're looking for because there are no written words that tell us and so we we don't have a, a document at time you know t3 or t2 that tells us exactly what what the rule is instead we're looking for practices which exactly. uh, embody, embody a rule or which one can appreciate as a rule from the internal point of view if you like we can get into your internal external critique a, a little bit but uh but which one identifies as, as as a rule and since you're looking for practices the natural question is practices when practices at the founding you know is it exactly. their attitudes toward interpretive method how about the the refounding after the civil war uh, or or how about today contemporary you know or, or or why not at the time they decided roe against wade and if it's just their practices at the time that they decided roe against wade then is this theory getting you you know is this so-called positive turn getting you anything at all because obviously people are disagreeing at you know time now <laughs> as to the right method right yep that's right and the, but the other, but the other ambiguity is uh, uh, sort of what it is that you're looking for. I mean, I think everything you said is is right. But the other ambiguity is what you're looking for in terms of: Are you looking at particular rules? Are you looking to traditional legal sources to identify, even if not written down, even if it requires some kind of interpretation? Are you looking for uh, 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 propositions or rules within legal sources, or are you looking to certain facts about what it is that courts are doing? Are you looking to practices from a kind of, I mean, I'm tempted to say external standpoint, although I kind of don't like talking in that language, but, yeah. but it's a little bit of a confusion about whether they are just taking, doing the, doing traditional lawyers work or whether they're stepping back and trying to look at our legal system as a whole. And so one thing you do in the paper is to try to say, okay, uh, we're, we're not, you know, being somewhat unsure about exactly what positivist theory of law is animating the identification of a of a rule of originalism that you doubt exists. Let's just try on three major such theories mm-hmm. and see see what happens. And you find in each of those three cases, the argument for originalism is compelled by rule to be wanting. Yeah, the reasons for the failure are different. The, 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 right. the, the, the first one is basically just that heart, which is the dominant view today of philosophy of law. That's most people probably would think that Hart is basically right. Not everyone does, yep. and I don't mean to assert that he was, uh, and I don't in the paper, but let's just take that. And that's basically that it's what courts do today as a matter of what rules they accept as valid. They take in the internal point of view with respect to some uh, rules that, uh, that, that entail that certain kinds of rules are valid. So, you know, the, the procedures that the Constitution lays out for how you pass a statute is a good example. Um, and, and, to be, and to be clear, it's not just like it's not it's not just their attitude about what they do it's not you know whatever we do is the law it's that they take a certain attitude toward choices they can make and they take an attitude that those choices are compelled by a rule exactly uh, and that they think and they think departure from that rule is grounds for criticism right exactly it's what they call what he calls a social rule and that they take the, the the judges take what he calls the internal point of view with respect to that rule um, so that's right. So then, so then the problem is, so then what they want to claim is that our law, to, if, if that's what you're basing it on, their claim is that interpretive rules governing how we ought to interpret the Constitution and statutes can be gleaned from 
from, uh, from that. And what I basically want to say, what I basically try to argue is there is no rule of recognition with respect to interpretive second order principles and rules. There's not, there's not sufficient, what you need for that, that social pressure that you just mentioned is you need a certain amount of social consensus. And we just don't see that degree of consensus about most of the interpretive debates that they're talking about. Can you imagine a world where when we went to look to the evidence, the evidence would have vindicated their assertion? What would that evidence look like? Like, what would we need to have seen when we went and looked at the cases? Yeah, that's a good question. That's, and I think that's the right, the right kind of question to ask. You would see, need to see near universal uh, 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 interpretive approaches that are the same. Right. That that uh, and you could think about it as something. I mean, uh, uh, Larry Solomon gives a good example of one, right, which is that the text of a uh, a statute, let's say, or the Constitution is relevant to determining its legal content. Right. Everyone. Yeah, no, everyone no, thinks that. Yeah, everyone thinks that. Right. So no yeah. judge would think no judge would think that, that you could just completely ignore the text and that it would literally not be relevant. Even if the, even if you dismiss it and it contradicts it, you would have to explain it away in some way. Right. So that's the kind of thing that you would see. That does seem like there's a rule of recognition about that. I just don't think and I think that's what their claim is. And their claim is basically, oh, well, that's what we should. And, and they cite that proposition. Uh, and they say, this is what we have in mind. It's just the problem is for most of the debates they're hoping to resolve or reorient or kind of push forward. You don't see anything like that consensus or at least. Well, I, so I think name. that they're you know, I think the argument that the the zone, the, the zone of acceptable interpretive methodologies or the, you know, the possible rules of meta interpretation that, you know, those aren't specified in our system by written rule. And yet there nonetheless is, uh, um, an attitude that people have of acceptance towards some such theories of interpretation and rejection of others. Mm -hmm. And that, that actually does, you know, I, I do appreciate that. So in, yeah. in that sense that, that their top line theoretical move, I appreciate, because I do think yep. that there is something in the rule of recognition that rules some kinds of, so like, for example, you know, but it rules out things that no one's trying to do. No one is up yes. at the DC circuit, right. cutting open a sheep to look at its entrails to right. figure out whether or not this, <laughs> this, the FCC's right. interpretation of the telecommunications act right. is permissible. Right. That's, right? that's, that's, that's and of, anyone who did yeah. that would be dragged off to the funny farm. That's an example I use. I mean, I I don't know if I use that exa example in the paper, but but I do think that the, the idea is that you know we don't we don't specify in complete detail the grounds on which I will accept or reject any possible theory of interpretation. Right? I just we're an institution, we're a court. I accept or reject what's in front of me, and we think we have some kind of agreement that the Constitution will control our the actions of this institution. Right? And that and that um, uh, judgments that we make, which are based on interpretations of the Constitution, I will accept even if we disagree, right? And that's how you mm -hmm. get theoretical disagreement despite, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, d but, but still positivism. And, 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 and I guess that these are evolving, right? So, you know, you, you write some opinions that are, uh, Joe, that say, you know, the Constitution compels me to do this and I disagree. You know, I think maybe, maybe you want to strike down uh, – um, or maybe I want to strike down abortion bans and you want to uphold them. That's basically right, right? What? But then in the next opinion, you, you, you continue along those lines and you say, okay, I'm using the Constitution. But what I'm doing is I'm reading the first letter of every word of the Constitution and then mixing them up and I'm coming to a different conclusion about what it means because I think there's hidden meaning in the Constitution right. because of some theory about like the subconscious of the of, – of the, like, you're still using, quote unquote, the Constitution, but that's not an interpretive technique that I would accept. And it's, mm -hmm. so it's not apparent, in fact, what the rule of recognition is 
until it evolves to a point where I, you know, engage in this attitude of acceptance or rejection, then I kind of clarify in my mind what, right. what, what models I'm willing to accept. So well, that yeah, seems and, not, so, and, crucially, and crucially, not just you, but almost everyone. Right, right. You know, will this institution of the court hang together or will they, in fact, split apart? Right. The, the cooperation continues despite the fact that, you know, Justice Scalia was committed to textualism, right, that this is mm-hmm. the right way to interpret. And he, and he argued not that my kind of meta-interpretive choice is the correct one. Mm-hmm. But he still continued to cooperate with Justice Breyer, who believed in, you know, active liberty and other things and right. were not bound by originalism. Those yep. were compatible in the sense that they could be mutually accepted. Uh, yep. as you, 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 despite disagreement. And so in that sense, I think the positive turn here is correct, right? That, 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 that positivism tw- uh, um, is, is a way that we can identify acceptable kinds of interpretation or, or it describes that what we're actually doing when we accept or reject grounds of interpretation. What I don't think it does, at least in our culture, and it certainly doesn't do this in general, it will, it will never kind of, to the extent people are disagreeing, it won't actually improve. Yes our ability to say who's right. Yeah. Well, right. Yeah, I mean, and not, and not just that. I mean, I guess, right. I think that's right. And also it just doesn't, because of that, it doesn't particularly advance things or help clarify issues. Exactly. I mean, I guess it points to certain areas of agreement, um, but it doesn't give us, it, it's not just that it doesn't solve them, but it doesn't kind of give us criteria by which we would might solve them or might even disagree about them in a different way than we were before. This is at least under Hart's. We're just talking about Hart's theory right now. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, that's, right. Under, that's right. Under, under, under Hart's theory, it, you know, to the extent people are still cooperating despite disagreement, you, you know, there's nothing with the, in, in, in that theory or, or within the definition of law under that theory that is going to allow you to, to say, well, one of these people who's disagreeing is actually wrong in some, you know, in, in a way that is implicit in the word law or in the idea of a system of law. That's right. You couldn't say that they are wrong on legal grounds. You could you can make arguments on moral grounds that they're that it's a bad that's a bad decision or bad approach on moral grounds or political grounds or prudential grounds or whatever it is. But that's right. On, under Hart's view, where there is disagreement and there they lack this consensus among uh, officials or courts, uh, there is no law. So you can't. The law won't, isn't going to solve isn't going to solve our problems. No. It, it- it does. Uh, I mean, I, I take it that if all you do when you tackle a set of questions is um, recast them or, or you, you sort of situate them in a new place, but it's so much like the old place, you know, meet the new problems, same as the old problems. Like, I, I get it. But but aren't there can be times where situating taking your pre-existing questions or issues or problems and resituating them actually is a significant movement. It actually is a step in an important direction, um, and so in this positive turn, if 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 what they if what one does is sort of refocus all the questions as questions about all right, we need to be we need to be more searching and uh, more mm-hmm. thorough in our assessment of social facts of this sort of practices of this sort of levels of acceptance of this degree, right? That that actually doesn't that change. The sort of the, the 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 kind of conversation we're having. Well, I would agree with that. I think. I mean, so for, certainly as a general matter, with the proposition you stated, that sometimes thinking about things in a different way or resituating us can be a advance. I think the, certainly that seems as a general matter 
possible. Whether that and further, I think that there's something to that in this case, and that I think, and this is part of coming back to the what we were first discussing about uh, about their effort to reconcile legal theory and practice. Another sort of way of looking at that. Uh, is is to think that what they're what they're suggesting, and this is something that I sympathize with, and think there is something too, is that they, what I think they're encouraging scholars to do is take the law more seriously in terms of looking at traditional legal sources. Let's not give up so quickly on the idea that there's no right answer. Basically, let's continue looking uh, for for a right answer in some way, and uh, and that I am sympathetic. To. I just am very skeptical that you can do that by just looking with uh, just looking at you know positive facts, whatever that means in the context of law. How would we resolve it? Levels of acceptance. I mean, so what would we do? Would we start um, looking at the number of courts that have followed a certain rule? Would we start looking at um, the, w- would the, the level of court matter in that respect? How would we how would we go about looking at sort of the degree of social acceptance of a given proposition? And if it's, you know, if it if if we say, oh, we only want to look at the highest court and we look at the Supreme Court, you say, well, what about the Supreme Court of Canada? I mean, that's an <laughs> English speaking court. It has uh, there's an, there are historical connections in the in yeah. the uh, in the English uh, tradition that link us together with the Supreme Court of Canada. For that matter, why not look at House of Lords opinions? And what I mean, so, yeah, and, and we we might think that the answers to those things are painfully obvious, but but that painful obviousness might merely be a reflection of familiarity with certain things we haven't really interrogated yet. Well, we might not have a good reason yeah. that we could articulate. And so when we started to fight about it, we might find that there was more to it than we realized, right? So, uh, yeah, it that's could a get sense pretty in much... Which, that's the sense in which the argument could be persuasive, right? That, that uh, someone comes and makes an argument that you should look at the way we decided cases way back when the way that that way has the, the way that that way has been unbroken uh, for a period the way that people today talk about the constitution as authoritative and what they mean by look at all of these different facts and and to argue like you should be persuaded that originalism is our law in the sense that it is uh it is the way that we do things around here <laughs> and 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 that's you know I I can appreciate you know and, and and other people have written other books like this is the way to interpret the Constitution because right. it does it delivers good results or it does these other things. It's the 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 move that tries to convert what is merely persuasive into something which is authoritative and therefore ending the process of persuasion. Right. That I think that's where this runs into trouble. Right. That that it's the kind of the the assimilation of what is an argument for a particular method to an argument about. Uh, that 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 method is grounded in some you know higher authority, whether it comes from positivism or, or not. That is, I think, right. it trouble. It's interesting what the difference is between uh, a persuasive argument. I mean, persuasive on what grounds other than authority? Right? In law, authority is persuasive. So, what do you have in mind when you say that that it would be uh, you could make arguments that are that are intended to be persuasive? Well, I, what I mean is that uh, within a certain zone of acceptance, and, and we can just you know, stipulate that the various justices who have different interpretive commitments and different interpretive ideas nonetheless continue to cooperate. And so we can see from that practice that, in fact, those are all tolerable forms of interpretation. And they may write books and they may do other things, including other judges, of course, to try to argue for their particular forms of interpretation. And they may try to persuade other people to come over to their views. What they are not asserting through their actions is that the other forms of interpretation are illegitimate and and destructive mm-hmm. of the cooperative enterprise and this is a move to try to say to try to end that 
persuasive debate. It's not just that my idea is better. It's not just Justice Scalia arguing, uh, arguing that democracy implies textualism. Uh, mm-hmm. For you know various various reasons of of you know of of transparency and voter accountability, et cetera, and that's what grounds textualism, right? That's you know in, in my piece I call that kind of a level four argument for a particular interpretive theory, but but I suggest that 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 argument is primitive in the sense that you could disagree with it, and there's nothing but kind of persuasion to kind of pull in terms of results or in terms of morals or whatever else it is, but no one is going to be able to point to a rule and say that. Around here, you were kind of violating some authoritative, some authoritative command if you disagree with me. And I think that, you know, it's no accident. I, I think that people who are a little bit more conservative are kind of pulled towards f- trying to ground these arguments in authority and mm-hmm. are kind of less comfortable with the idea that, you know, that yields to pragmatism or there can be some heterodoxy of interpretive methods and that's okay. You know, that there always has to be kind of this authoritative uh, grounding. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and you see that both in the kinds of methods that people choose and in the way that they argue for those methods. Now, I, that may be way, way too broad, but but that's the move here, right? The move here is to is not to say that um, uh, originalism is is a good method because it avoids these problems of interpretation or it does this or it does that. It's to say that the law requires originalism. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, they're not actually suggesting, of course, that that anybody, you know, that we impeach judges who who don't follow. They're 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 not that strong about it. They're making an argument about what law requires. Yeah. Um, and but it's a di- but it's different in kind from writing a book about active liberty or about textualism, which says, hey, this is a really good way of doing things. No, I think that yeah, that's a very nice. Way. I think that's I think that's exactly I think that's exactly right. And they say as much uh, in terms of that's the whole point of trying to get rid of the normative arguments. They say, look, that beside the point if we can all just agree that we basically think judges uh, ought to apply the law or have a are, are under oath or uh, have a duty to a- apply the law because of the oath or maybe because of democratic principles then we should agree that at least prima facie they have an obligation to do this method of interpretation if we can show that that interpretation is what the law requires so i know i think that's exactly right i mean it is just the only thing i'd, I'd worth pointing out to to sort of contrast the 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 uh, the view you just described, Christian, is uh, that, of course, Dwork, what Dworkin would say is, yes, it's about what the law requires, but that's not inconsistent with the idea that what Scalia is arguing about is that originalism is required by uh, the rule of law and democracy. That's why it's part of the law, <laughs> right? I mean, he, he would reject the distinction between that, that making uh, normative moral arguments is inconsistent with it being um, uh, it being it following that it's it's the law. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he he's committed to a right answer thesis, and that right answer is dependent on 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 political morality, you know, justice and fairness, and and what those imply, and that and that someone who is omniscient and super smart could actually figure out in every case what that requires. No, I'm but, forgetting some of my terminology here, but the 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 notion that uh, moral morals as part of the internal point of view and and a source of norms it, what is that called soft positivism soft positivism or is yeah, that this also, is this is hard I is mean, it sometimes called inclusive positivism yeah inclusive legal positivism or okay. soft positivism um as opposed to raz which is the second example here is right, the exclusive right, right. legal positivist yeah the uh, it's interesting to me that uh, as someone who's not steeped in in these jurisprudential debates in the way that that i think both of you are uh, that the the very um the very mushiness and flexibility of the rule of recognition in its unwrittenness uh and the 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 
the insight of heart that, you know, there's a lot of law making, not just law finding in right. within this system of, of a positivist approach um, is in a way uh, kind of hard to square with the goal of eliminating all these disputes and conversations. And you might go so far as to say, I don't know that I would ultimately, but but one might go so far as to say that uh, there's something there, there's some truth revealed in an unending dialogue, a dialectic, sort of a Hegelian point, right? The spirit spirit coming to know itself through thesis, antithesis, and right. synthesis, etc. Right? That that trying to eliminate these conversations is not only not going to work, yeah. not, not yeah. ultimately not that helpful. It's like contrary to the basic fabric of all of it. That's right? true. But, but you could argue that law is always in the process of eliminating some things from the debate and including mm-hmm. other things. Of course. Right. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's because so that, it's embedded in time, if nothing else. And, and right. The, but, and, but, the, right. but the, it should, but, but it should, what it shouldn't do, it can eliminate things and get new things injected and what, but what it shouldn't do is try to stop itself being a, an endless chewing over in conversation among all the participants. Well, right. Well, it's an yeah, act. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a conclusion. It's an ongoing activity. Charles, you may be able to speak more to the inclusive originalist point of view here, but I, I get the sense that, that they are seeking to, uh, or, or what they're arguing for here. And again, I don't know that they're actually trying to stop the debate, but, but they're trying, they're arguing for a rule of recognition, which includes, um, as viable interpretive techniques, various kinds of originalism but that so there would still be that kind of ongoing cyclical debate but it would be kind of restricted to originalism i i, I don't know that they that, right that <laughs> well no again that's because oh, right now like 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 your example of fouls like in examining the intervals of fouls like we don't have we're not going to continue talking about that right that's <laughs> that's clearly excluded by right you know so, so the you know the, the rule of recognition that we have right is is the one saying you know this is what we do around here but further we think on reflection it's what we ought to do around here right and it's a way of getting that normative point in there and when we think about that like what it, it, it includes continued debate about these acceptable methods but it excludes examining the trails of fouls or using the acrostic form of the of the constitution right. or or doing whatever you think but advantages Christian, what I'm saying is race, the, 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 yeah. the difference between those things and the stuff I'm talking about is there are plenty of people doing the stuff I'm talking about no one is cutting open the fouls on the front steps of the courthouse that's true but the the history of of our law and the, the, the long arc of our constitutional law includes the cutting away and making unacceptable arguments that at one time have been acceptable. Sure. And there and and I think their project is continuous with those efforts. You know, they're trying to move it in a particular way. Let's stop having the argument about, you know, that, that the constitution can mean whatever you want it to mean to serve certain principles of justice, right? And instead it means kind of what it originally meant. And and there are a lot of different ways of interpreting that. And they're trying to restrict yeah, it to that. This might just be you more, just don't more, mis- you just don't agree with that project. Well it might be it might be more evidence that that I mean, does, does anyone actually think, that just that make the Constitution mean whatever you think it means and right. that you want to? Is Consistent, anyone actually suggesting that? Well, it's no. I mean, within a zone. So within, within a zone of like, so can the Constitution mean something because it would be, be, can the Constitution be interpreted to mean a particular thing because it would lead to a just result in this case, even if it's inconsistent with any form of original intention, however, or, or, or original public meaning, however divined. And they're trying to say no. And I think that process of cutting away arguments and making them unacceptable is 
that's just the history of our law. That's the way things have worked, and I, uh, in, in in many instances, to our great betterment. Right. Um, however, what theoretically what I object to is is the move to say that the reason that we should cut those away is because there is some superior rule which compels it. Right. We are a th- we are bound right. by an authority to cut those away, and that's the. Okay, right, because so another reason, right? In the, I mean, if I understand you correctly, because in the, the in other contexts, in kind of substantive context rather than the interpretive one, sort of first order rules, the reason why we, you know, exclude lots of reasons that might bear on a, uh, a subject is often for either coordination reasons or or uh, what might more broadly be called rule of law values. Right, we want a certain amount of of predictability and certainty about what it is that we're dealing with and what criteria we're going to bring to bear on certain kinds of problems as they arise. And you might think that the same thing applies when it comes to interpretive techniques, that we should we, we should limit ourselves in certain ways so that we have better and more determinate ways of answering legal questions. That seems perfectly valid, but again, it's just a, it's a normative argument. It's looking to certain kinds of values that we think a legal system ought to uh, vindicate or achieve. And I can imagine a culture together with a history where that argument seems super compelling. Like everyone yeah. agrees. Yeah, we, we got to do because maybe there's something horrible that happened because of the exercises of discretion. Uh, who, who knows, right? You can, you know, yeah. make up your own story, right? And, and suddenly it seems everyone just agrees. The way we do things around here is really kind of civil law oriented or, you know, the, we're always going to look at either just the raw text in front of us or we're going to be historians and all of our judges will be judge historians. You know, you can imagine situations where that would seem super compelling. I just don't think it's implicit in uh, in the word law or, uh, or right. it doesn't follow even from our culture combined with the word law. But I wonder if That's we can right. go, I don't know, maybe we can skip over Raz since we've talked yeah, yeah, a lot yeah, about um, the, but, but but let's talk about Scott Shapiro's piece because that's the one that you say you know this is a different positivist uh, theory of law which is super interesting great book legality that people should take mm-hmm. a look at and and is probably the most um, um, the, 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 the the most uh, conducive to kind of a theory like this that there is a particular meta interpretive mm-hmm. principle originalism uh, in this case that uh, that that is required um, by at least our law. Well, so the basic idea, and the reason why it strikes me is kind of there's a certain kind of family resemblance between the theories is what what Shapiro argues is that in order to determine what the law is, at least under some in some legal systems, and he thinks, which is a separate argument that um, United United States is such a system, but in systems what he call authority systems, the way we ought to figure out how to interpret our documents is by looking to basically what the uh, what he calls the, the 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 master planners, basically the people who you know, in our case, the the drafters of the Constitution, the framers, what kind of interpretive techniques they thought should govern the ruling of uh, of the different plans of the Constitution and of statutes. So it's similar in that respect. It's similar to their their kind of substantive understanding of originalism, what what might be what's sometimes called methods originalism, which is that we ought to look to the original uh, understanding of the interpretive pre- techniques that will govern how we interpret the document. And his argument is that in situations where people experience what he calls the conditions of legality, these are the yes, kind exactly. of you can think of as tragedy, of the commons, and other kinds of of coordination problems, and other kinds of, uh, other problems which are similar to court, but but maybe different moral problems. Whatever law is just that thing that people do to try to resolve those things in advance. It's a way to kind of coordinate and and say, you know what, we're going to say now what we're going to do later, right? So this is this kind of general principle of planning that, you know, there, there, there can be another purpose of law if we're doing something now, which will have no effect later, right? So so mm-hmm. law is that thing that we do, which is intended to have some future effect of at least, 
if not totally resolving, helping us resolve um, kind of future dispute, disputes mm-hmm. that arise under this uh, under these conditions of legality. And so there's something about that original moment, which is very important to his theory, right? It, it, because the whole idea of law comes from the idea that in back in these kind of original moments, we are thinking of the future. And, and if in the future moments we pay no attention to what happened in those original moments, then we might as well not have planned at all. And and that's mm-hmm. you know you, you read that and you're naturally thinking of originalism, but of course he doesn't require that in in, yeah. in his theory. And yeah, I I don't know if you want to speak to the alternatives, but there's the you know the, with these economies of trust and and so right. in other words, your your original plan might have been to let judge to let particular kinds of people decide future questions, which obviously yeah. is not originalist, right? That's right. And I mean there are a couple, and this gets a little bit into the weeds of of Shapiro's. Uh, theory, but w- I mean, one issue is that uh, you know, in a way, you hit the same problem we did with Hart when, it, when with respect to the uh, when we know there's law. If law depends on having a certain kind of consensus, that's going to be a problem if there's not a consensus. Now, it originally looks like Shapiro's answer uh, doesn't require us having a certain kind of consensus among judges today. But then if we look to if what the law is, is determined by what the, the intentions of the, the master planners, uh, what Shapiro is clear on is that it only makes sense to think about those intentions is if there was consensus among them. So now we then then the, then the problem just goes back to is there was there a sufficient consensus at the time of the founding about these different interpretive methods and things like that? Um, and there again, you have historical debate about whether there was uh, whether people really agreed about you know what what Shapiro calls the economy of trust or what Bowdoin Sachs called the law of interpretation at the time of the founding. And that's a, in a way a historical question. But it's a problem. And, for and if you wanted to, yeah, if you wanted to criticize this this move, and 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 as you point out, um, you know, the inclusive originalists haven't really made use of Shapiro's theory in the way that it seems obvious that they might. But uh, if you want to, you could either criticize Shapiro's theory directly, and we we could talk about like if we really inevitably, even though there was a plan, you know, we have to look back to intentions of the planners and what you know. That's that general yeah, principle yeah, yeah. of planning. Maybe maybe that's not right. Um, I think that may be beyond the scope of our conversation. But but sure. also, um, even if you take that view, does it imply originalism? And I think you contest both of those. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, part of the problem is that he he doesn't he doesn't actually it's not actually required by his theory of law that we do that that we do go that we go down this whole road of looking to the right. uh, framework. He actually says that in some systems, what he calls opportunistic systems, if we just use the original plan because it's consistent with our prior moral views, then we don't have to go through any of that stuff. And he attributes this view to Posner. And he says, you know, he just thinks that's a descriptive matter. That's not most people aren't like Judge Posner. But if we were, then there'd be no obligation to go. And then the over and then the overall point, and this sort of applies to all of them, right, is just that. Well, even if even if you found one of these theories, even if these problems that I point to in Shapiro's theory can be overcome, well, then you have to then you have to make an argument. Then you, then your then your theory of originalism or whatever it is you're trying to derive from your understanding of law depends on on a particular philosophy of law. And how do we argue about philosophy of law? We can't read that off of our positive law. That's a conceptual argument about that that you know depends on our intuitions about what certain kinds of concepts require. What philosophers call conceptual analysis. Either that or it requires a normative argument and people debate about which one of those two things it ought to be or it, it properly is. But the point is these are all – these are akin to all the debates they're saying that we should avoid. So we're back to where and we that's, started. That's, you know, and that's – to the extent you think you can make progress on, on the inclusive originalist project by moving to Shapiro, then the question is, well, did Hart basically have it right in terms of just describing law and Shapiro's theory is really 
Hart's theory imbued with a particular normative idea about what law should be, you know, and, and if that's true, then why should you choose his conception of why law should be rather than some other, um, some, some other form of rule of recognition plus secondary rules plus primary rules? Yeah, I think that's right. And, and this discussion about, about strategy in the paper and, and what the paper is doing is, is very much about positivism and, and uh, that methodology that turn to interp- using positivism to try to underwrite interpretive method, right? Okay. So it, it, it sort of brackets the question, um, is originalism the best place for all this to wind up, right? Yes, yes. You kind of, exactly. you kind of bracketed that. Exactly. That's right. That's why I think it was a substantive question, right. Yeah, so, but I want to unbracket it in the sense that my, my guess is that it's very important to Bowden's action, having met neither of them and talked to neither of them, but but still my sense is, and, and just a sort of, of originalism scholarship generally, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's actually very important that the answer is originalism. <laughs> like, th- <laughs> that's not an accident um, or, yeah. or uninteresting to the people who are engaged in that enterprise. So I was just hoping you could, I- I'm interested to just hear your thoughts on it from that point of view. Like, what is this originalism, originalism thing really all about? And what is it it, it seems to be scratching an itch. What's the itch? Uh, that's interesting. I'm not sure I have a good answer to that. Uh, the, back to the, the 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 earlier idea of you know does this does their version of originalism undermine the whole um, you know rationale for it in the first place? Which some of the sort of what they call old style originalists originalists say they say oh you know what's the point if you're going to go this far and allow in any um, any kinds of interpretive techniques, uh, you know, allowing precedent, stare decisis, a moral reading, all of this stuff, if it were, um, if we had the proper kind of authorization, which is what they say, uh, you know, what the motivation is then, if it's not the, the essentially political motivation of constraining the Supreme Court and channeling it in certain directions, I, I'm not sure, except for maybe the, except back to the, 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 uh, the point I suggested a little while ago, which is, which again, is one, a point that I have some sympathy with um, is the idea that w- that our, our our legal tradition, our legal corpus, um, broadly understood in term as the writings in um, treatises, court cases, uh, constitution itself, etc., uh, are, are are kind of rich resource of figuring out how we should go about solving our problems today. That our legal materials are themselves a source of um, a guidance and not just a kind of object of uh, of analysis from some other perspective. That's maybe that's a little abstract. I think Joe's question is why, you know, why the attraction to that? Oh, why the attraction? Well, this gets back to the first point, which is, I think there, there's a sense that it, we're, we're legal scholars. What is it the legal scholars do? Is there, is, is, is law an intellectual discipline? Is there something that lawyers are there? methods of reasoning and um, uh, certain kinds of sources and methods and values that are distinctive to law, which gets but it's sometimes framed as the old question of kind of whether law is, quote, autonomous or not, although that word has always struck me as vague and susceptible to lots of different meanings, most of which most people don't subscribe to. But I think it's something like that. I think it's something, uh, a, a, a kind of, to use the word anxiety again, a kind of questioning about what, the, what it is that uh, law is as a as a discipline, as an area of inquiry that for which scholarship is the right word for. There, there's the kind of transparency and agency theory of Scalia, which drives in that, you know, that, that there's a problem with 
judges having too much discretion. And so it's not just a political opposition to what the Supreme Court has done, right? The, but right. the more principled version of it is right. that a Supreme Court imbued with those powers is problematic for for democracy. But there's another side of this too, right? Which is the, the degree to which um, originalism is kind of congenial with, like I said earlier, a hunger for authority, right? Mm-hmm. Just a, yep. th- there needs to be a grounding for what we do Otherwise, I'm a I'm a tyrant. Now, we don't necessarily feel that with legislators because they are elected and responsive. And so, you know, we have no problem with like the, the people as tyrant, although th- then you go to Caroline products and you see, in fact, the court is a break on people as tyrant. But uh, so I, I think both of those are happening. I think that's I think that's quite clearly the original rationale for originalism understood originally as as originally conceived. It was supposed to be a constraint on judges. I think that's right. It's just the criticism of their style of originalism now is that it lets too much in it's not doesn't act as an actual constraint because so many things uh pass as originalism that um that it doesn't effectively serve that goal perhaps i mean contra maybe contra kessler and posen though you know if you could just get people to agree that we are constrained to originalism in the broad tent sense then that's like putting an agent in place or that's like moving in the right direction and then we then all of our arguments will be internal to originalism and then we're just trying to get, you know, shifting coalitions within the originalist core. And maybe that advances some, uh, you know, if your commitment is to a particular kind of originalism, whether on political grounds or, or principled grounds, if there's a difference or whatever, then maybe there's something to be gained from getting everybody onto that boat, even if it's like a really big boat, to mix my metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> what's in, what's cross-cutting here in independent, I think, is the, the, the worry that... Um, that there's a breach between practicing lawyers and judges on the one hand and law professors on the other that makes the work of the latter sort of less less relevant or or anxiety producing uh, if if you could have big tent originalism it, does, it seems to me that doesn't entail the idea that there ought to be this or that there will be this breach between practicing lawyers and judges on the one hand and law professors on the other it it has turned out though and maybe this ultimately does get back to some of the political dynamics of the last few decades, right? It it does, it has turned out that a lot of the most powerful critiques of originalism were coming from the academy uh, in a more left direction, aimed at the the sort of post Nixon judiciary in a more right direction. And so maybe these things have gotten conflated, where in an alternate universe they would not have become conflated or intermingled, right? They, one does not seem to entail the other. That's definitely true, except I guess what I was suggesting, and maybe this is the opposite of what you were just saying, which is that it seems to me that the looking to originalism, at least in this broader sense that they seem to be interested in, is a way of bringing the two together. Because as, Christian, you were saying before, it's a way of saying, well, if we can all agree on this, if we can all agree that we're basically looking to traditional legal materials about the founding and maybe about other uh, uh, subsequent changes since the Founding, then we're all we're a we're all in agreement about some basic principles, and b it makes it's law, and so it makes sense of what we are doing because we are investigating the law. Just like we're already all on the same boat about you know the fact that we have to interpret the Constitution and not some other document, right? Yes. I mean, we don't even think about the fact that that is a criterion for continued cooperation, but it is. I mean, the minute a justice starts saying, yeah, you know, screw the Constitution, I got a better way of resolving this case. Right. They're probably facing yeah. impeachment removal. Or if there are enough of those, then the institution will just fall apart. Right. <laughs> you know, there, there could be fighting, you know, whatever else. But it will not be, uh, you know, I respectfully dissent. 
right? It would be, right. yeah. you know, something. It's like, what are you doing telling me Pablo Neruda's latest volume of poetry is the way I have to dispose of this case, <laughs> right. right? It's, you're right, like, you're right. talking gibberish. Yeah. So, the, so there right. is a zone and this is maybe, it's, it's weird because this is like the, the, the meta interpretive version of Hart's core penumbra and then, and then yeah. just legislative mode, right? That there's, there's a zone of meta interpretive principles that are, that are so clearly outside of any acceptable is you know what is recognized under this rule of recognition if you like that we don't even think about it right we don't even think that we have we, we don't even think we have a core of acceptability because the other things are so obviously unacceptability but there That's is right. a penumbra of acceptability right there must be some yeah. it's just the justices maybe have no incentive to surface those um, maybe except in writings and books you know maybe, maybe posner yeah. is actually surfacing what's in the penumbra of of acceptability right when he talks about at the limits of pragmatism where you have very where you might have in some cases very little contact with original documents and yet you're arriving at a solution that makes sense right it's almost where posner bends around and touches dworkin in a way right i mean you're making sense of all these materials in a way which might actually lose contact with the original materials uh Mm -hmm. there you might be in the in in the penumbra I don't know. I'm maybe I, I feel like with this whole conversation, I've got like I'm trying out too many ideas. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, They're like there's too much running around, and it's so much to think about. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, that's what that was one thing that was hard about writing the paper, and uh, you know, in in a positive vein, it's it's to 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 the author's credit, they put a lot of interesting ideas out there, and it's, it was very ambitious, and there's a lot of different sort of things going on. So I think that's what makes it somewhat hard to talk about. I mean, for instance, one thing, what one little tension, right, is that, and that's maybe a little bit why this can be get kind of confusing, is that um, on the one hand, they get criticized by their old style originalists as having too capacious, and I've used this word before, of uh, too, too broad understanding of originalism, for instance, because they allow for the fact that if a term is, uh, if, if the um, Constitution uses a general term, then it might be filled out with very broad principles. So Obergefell might be uh, consistent with a original understanding. So some people look at that and they say, oh, well, this is so diluted. It doesn't even, it's not even worthy of its name. It doesn't do what we thought originalism was supposed to do, which is constrain judges to a more uh, traditional understanding. On the other hand, they make their version of originalism is quite specific and in my view, completely implausible as a descriptive matter, which is that the claim is, and both of them are quite clear about this, that the reason why, what would make it the case that Obergefell is okay, is whether the method of interpretation was the law at the founding. So it's a methods originalism that really does tie everything back to the founding, which is, which almost I don't think any court has, uh, I mean, they use, they basically cite one case where the Supreme Court has ever hinted that that's a requirement of their interpretive principles, whether for statutes or the Constitution. So that's what's a little bit confusing. On the one hand, their, their, their form of originalism seems very kind of weak in and uh, not in a, in a derogatory sense, but just in terms of what it allows and or what it keeps out. And on the other hand, it's a very specific, strong form of originalism uh, that most people think is descriptively totally inaccurate. Now, I've, I've read some of their papers, but but not all. So I don't know if they deal with this. But, what, you know, when we're applying the 14th Amendment, why are we looking at the interpretive law that is instantiated with other than with words by the founders and not the reframers or, or the framers and not the reframers of the oh, constitution that's a good question. I, I, I don't know i mean it might be that with with respect to the you know the 14th amendment uh you know it's a it's a different you know that you'd want to look to whatever methods of interpretation they thought was appropriate for the 14th amendment you might but you, you see the difficulty here right because we have to, with with basically an unwritten but practice oriented 
uh, inference about a rule commanding a particular kind of interpretation uh, or method of interpretation, you would ask, well, the 14th Amendment, which also doesn't say anything about the method of interpretation, might be just incorporating what has happened before. Right. Mm-hmm. It might be yep. ratifying forms, forms of interpretation which have diverged from the original understanding, but ha- but having emerged over time uh, yep. or that have emerged in response to the abuses of of, the, you know, that kicked off the Civil War or it could be a response to Dred Scott. I mean, we'd have to try to, to figure out like what, you know, what is the it, cl- clearly there's authority to, to make a new. I mean, they could have put in the 14th Amendment and this amendment shall be interpreted in the following way. And then yep. we would have to decide you know, what our attitude is toward that command um, or, or that, you know, or if it's a command, uh, there seems to be a lot of complication, you, you know, and, and maybe the 14th, they had very different attitudes when they ratified the 14th Amendment about interpretation than existed back at the. And why isn't framing. that true? Actually, when you think about it, why isn't right. that true of every single amendment? Why doesn't every amendment reset the clock um, for the entirety yeah, of the document. Yeah, and, and since we're talking about interpretation in general, of course, statutory interpretation should be the same. And, or, or why isn't it the same? Or why well, isn't what, it the same? And it, or contracts, where you could even go to contracts. And, and there you might have, you know, a rule about objectiveness because it serves certain purposes. But, and in a way, course of performance is used to do that. I think what they would say is, that's true. All of those things are potentially on the table. We got to look and see. We've got to look and, and see whether we have any reason to think that when they passed the 14th Amendment, they were radically revising the way we thought we should interpret the 14th Amendment or whatever. It's a, essentially a factual historical question. So if I'm getting two thirds, uh, you know, who, who ratified, I don't remember what the number was in, in the Senate, but uh, but a majority that favored strict textualism, um, maybe 20 percent who were purposivist and then a bunch of people who didn't say anything at all. Like, what do I even do with that? So what about the just the possibility argument? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that you get in. It seems to me that it invites those kinds of questions. Right? How would we and I don't even go into that in the paper, but right. Exactly. How would we decide what is a, 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 a I mean, this gets back to Joe's earlier question about you look at the sort of extent of acceptedness. Right. Uh, there's a similar version of that, right? What does it mean for there to be uh, sufficient consensus on a particular point for there to be, for it to count as law uh, uh, and so forth? So yeah, I don't know how you'd go, I don't know how you could possibly resolve those kinds of questions uh, by reference to other facts about our law. Yeah, and it just kind of reframes the question as whether the positive turn is toward originalist rhetoric rather than originalism, right? <laughs> as evidence, you cite, you cite right. kind of the, uh, the reverence for the Constitution, the, the right. uh, reverence for the framers. You cite the use of originalist methodology, um, or at least the rhetoric of methodology. But that's, of course, different than saying our actual practice is historians or originalists of some stripe. No, I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. It's hard to pin down with the actual, what, the, what actual facts would, would make the difference. So what are we to do at the end of it all and at the end of your paper? You seem to be making some suggestions about a different way to resolve some of these anxieties. And, and so what's your, <laughs> what are we to do when, when it, because it seems like you could look at law school hiring in the last 15 or 20 or 30 years and say, ah, there's sort of growing a fascination among law faculties with PhDs who have very little connection with law as such, right? That's going to make these problems worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, of course, to the degree that uh, judges are interested in hiring law clerks from elite law schools, they'll feel less 
served uh, on this on that side of the equation. Um, so, what are we to do with with all of this? Should 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 law faculty be less disdainful if they are at all disdainful? Should they be less disdainful of of good old practicing lawyer values? And should should judges be a little less uptight about looking at things like psychology, sociology, linguistics? Yeah. I think both of those, I mean, you, you actually sort of put well, but I think better than I have what, what I'm trying to say a little bit at the end there, which is not a, a, a it's, it's not a well worked out theory by any means. Uh, it's more of a kind of gut feeling about and frustration with the way these issues get talked about in the legal academy, which is that it's often, um, and again, I suggest that even Dworkin was susceptible to this, which is this kind of distinction that we all fall into between thinking of things that from an internal perspective, as uh, from the perspective of law or certain kinds of you know, law, meaning lawyers, judges, and maybe certain kinds of legal scholars uh, versus, quote, external perspectives of other disciplines. And I know what that intuition is tracking, and it's easy to, to, to feel and sense, but I think it's unhelpful. And I think that it should be uh, that we sort of, sort of try to stop thinking in those terms and think about what is what are the underlying, what, why might you know, a given psychological theory, economic theory, historical account, why might that be relevant to what a judge wants to do? Uh, and why might it not be relevant? And at the same time, let's not dismiss, and this is where I think Bowdoin Sachs would be, would agree with me, that um, let's not dismiss uh, sort of lawyerly analysis of traditional legal sources as just rhetoric and ends-driven uh, political, um, uh, you know, something driven by a political agenda. Uh, there can be careful interpretive work uh, that is is valuable and can and can be illuminating. So I, I get frustrated with the, the the tendency to sort of put in those those different kind of boxes. It is funny though how it, in a way it kind of I mean I I I think those are really important insights that that you're that you're presenting at the end of the paper. Uh, and at the same time, it does seem like in a way things keep getting refracted back through the the sort of various modalities in the Warren court and the results that it produced and and the sort of you know is the is the knock on the reliance on social science ultimately a criticism of brown is it ultimately a a, a way to try to um revisit the questions that bickle and others raised about how gosh these opinions are terribly reasoned um and uh, they're unconvincing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It just seems like we keep we're kind of t- we're we're trapped in a little bit of a time loop, even when we're discussing in this more abstract sense, sort of lawyerly value and and external perspectives. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I think the, the brown the brown citing of, of of the social science evidence is such an interesting example and, and gets to what I'm talking about because you know so what is that that's been the subject of a lot of criticism and it's interesting to ask what is the problem with that was the problem that the was that the social science evidence about the effect of segregation on black children was it that it was not very good science which is one uh, or social science which was one criticism and and from from what I know true that it wasn't particularly uh, well done social science even for its day. Or is it that we don't think that that's even appropriate at all and that what the Constitution requires shouldn't depend on what social science tells us uh, about certain kinds of sociological facts? Uh, And I think that is a worthwhile question to ask. It doesn't really, you know, it's neither internal nor external. It's it's about what kind of uh, what what the Constitution ought to mean and how we ought to think about um, what kinds of considerations 
questions go into it. It seems to me a deeply you know, normative question in the broad sense of the word, um, part, because part of the answer is going to depend on how, maybe part of the answer is going to depend on how reliable we think our social science can ever be, or how well it tracks our moral intuitions about what the, uh, about what the Constitution requires. So it seems to me that the kind of the, 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 the value and place that social science and now we're, of course, much more sophisticated about it, but the, um, it, this, but the questions are the same. The role that uh, the social sciences play in uh, adjudication, not just constitutional adjudication, but all uh, adjudication is, is one that should sort of constantly be asked. Well, it is constitutive, right? I mean, this, it's just another set of arguments that are either in law or outside law. And, you know, the arguments that are in form what our practice of law means. And so it's no accident you would think people would be continuously arguing over such things, you know, arguing over what count as law's grounds. And, you know, your paper kind of, I think, nicely exposes, uh, and, and Bowdoin Sachs' paper also nicely exposes the different ways that we can have that contest, right? One is to say, you know, y- you think that um, you think that this counts as an argument and I just don't find it compelling. I think a better argument is this. And the other is to say that argument is not part of our law in the same way that, you know, it would be like looking, you know, the, that that social science may be compelling uh, as a matter of science, but but it is as relevant to law as the entrails afoul, right? E- d- whatever its scientific merit. The, uh, that nicely identifies the point. I guess what I, I would want to say is, and that there should be an argument. It is worthwhile having that argument uh, about the, um, uh, you know, why we're not looking to the sheep to decide our question. That's an easy one, right? There are easy answers you can give. But for more uh, difficult questions, I feel like the argument should begin when we recognize that it's not part of our law, and the question should be, uh, should it be? Whereas it's often uh, uh, it's often used as a response to certain kinds of arguments. Well, no, that's. I mean, a perfect example here, right, which it takes a very different, they're very different area is like the, which maybe you guys have done a show on. If so, I would like to listen to it is, you know, all the, re- <laughs> the relevance of neuroscience to criminal responsibility and adjudication about criminal, about crime, right? Huge, huge mm-hmm. issue about the nature of free will, about all these, you know, big issues about uh, responsibility. Uh, it's sometimes given as a response to those. No, that's not what the legal system cares about. We don't care about that. That's right. not, it's out, it's outside. And that seems to me just a completely, you know, sort of stipulative non-answer. The question should be, okay, well, why not? Should we, should it change our attitudes about criminal responsibility? If not, why not? Uh, and then let's give argument. There might be good reasons. To, there might be good reasons to exclude it, right? There might be very good reasons, but let's, let's talk about those reasons and not just say, oh, well, it's external to the enterprise. Yeah, you should look at our show with Adam Colber we did about Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. You have one with that. Yeah, it's really, it was, it was really fun. Uh, Adam's great. The the interesting thing about the foul example, the entrails of the foul example is that, you know, it, it, in in one sense, it's an easy question. Should that be part of our law? The answer is no. We all, you know, it's, it's really easy, but the hard question is why is that not part of our our law? And that in some ways is as hard a question as whether originalism is our law or whether social science should be a part of our law or counts as an argument in and in what ways and in what context i mean these are the questions these are the constitutive questions these are if if you take hart's view these constitute the rule of recognition and you know i identify the rule of recognition not only as kind of an ultimate rule but also filling up all the interstices between you know the the uncertain places between rules and 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 that you know i i think i think it's a really hard question it's it's it, the the easy sense of are the entrails a foul part of our law is that 
you know, no, it's not because no one is arguing that it is right. It's just, it's outside because we all just accept that it's not a part of our law. But if we have to articulate why it's not, then we expose theoretical disagreements about how we go about identifying what the law is. Right. And, and, you know, the challenge is, is creating a positivist theory, if, if you want to do this, which I do, which nonetheless encompasses those basic theoretical disagreements about how it is we go about identifying the criteria under which the foul is not a part of our law, even though we all, in the application of our criteria, agree on that fact. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, this gets, I looked briefly at your, at, at the thing you sent me this morning. I mean, so is that, is that connected up with that, the, the idea of, of, of sort of yeah. modeling our responses? I was, I didn't follow it entirely, but it was really interesting to me. <laughs> that's, that'll probably be a common reaction. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because no, we, we'll, we'll I didn't it. get to the part where you, t- where you, t- where you talk, because I just read the introduction, but uh, it looked like you yeah. said you hook it up with the jurisprudential debate. So do you see do you see it as working within a broadly kind of Hardian framework? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's uh, it is hard, but it it it, um, it it operates at an individual and institutional level. Um, okay. But I don't. We're not going to get into it all right okay. now. I mean, you take, I'd be I'd be really interested to hear what what, what you think about yeah. it because it. I think it, it's hard to talk about anything without talking about everything. Once we get to these kinds yes. of questions. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, and so there you need, you know, it's no accident when you look at a book like Shapiro's and you look at hearts and when you look at Dworkin's, they, there's this rhythm to it, right? It's this, you know, you answer this question of identification and what it is that makes law, but inevitably you get to the interpretation question, right? And, yeah. and, and all of that is joined. Like you can't talk about it and you don't have a full theory until you have all of those things working together. And it, it, it makes it difficult, right? To kind of pull a single piece out. I don't know. No, that's right. I want to. I want to mention a, a different thread of, of to close for me on in terms of because I know we're we're about out of time, but but the you know the social science part of it and the and the and I'm a I'm a sort of refugee from psychology in a sense. I mean, I went to grad school okay. in psychology and decided not to do it anymore because I that we have there's a sense in which we have an enormous social science of the American undergrad, uh, and it's sort of unpersuasive on that ground. But the but the the rejection of social science uh or or the the sort of the the judge or practicing lawyer who who seems to react to and I'm not assigning this to Bowdoin Sachs at all I'm just but we just know this is out there in the culture the sort of frustration with things that are outside the most traditional legal materials right the sense of impatience or like god that's going to make my job a lot harder like the, <laughs> it's in a way this sort of endless rebuke of Holmes and and his insights about what skills lawyers are going to need to have and what knowledge lawyers are going to need to feel comfortable with and and I it, it's sort of in a way to me kind of frustrating like really are we still going to have this conversation all these decades later like yeah you're going to need to learn some of these things uh, and it's and, and it's actually going to help uh, because it's going to make adjudications more accurate, more efficient, both. You can get gains in both of those dimensions. Uh, so it's just a little maddening to um, to feel from from where I sit that there's this continuing resistance uh, and, uh, expressed as uh, sort of like, no, let's just keep on using the most traditional legal material. <laughs> I don't think it's maddening. I mean, I think it's it's something to argue about. There are reasons. And it's not obvious to me. In fact, it's obvious to me the contrary, that that for many instances of cooperation, which I associate with legal systems, you know, whether they're people playing games or they're homeowners associations or there are other areas where you can identify what I actually think is a legal system, that that wouldn't require 
participants in that group and lawmakers within that group to be statisticians or social scientists, sure. but but could just be say, you know, all we need to look at is are the details of our conversation that kick this whole thing off. Right. But where but where one person is saying, look, what I think would illuminate some of what's happening here is these insights we have from other social practices that to to react to that in an open way rather than a closed way. Uh, that's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, is a little maddening, yeah, and the I, fact but, that we keep we keep yeah. sort of reliving arguments rather than actually. Yeah, progressing. Two, two points though. I mean, one is that I, I think it's it's high time that we have like a thoroughgoing originalist on who will just take us to the woodshed for all the <laughs> for all of our uh, you know for, for all of our substantive uh, critiques on on originalism. But secondly, but secondly, I think you know if you just think about a, a group, a small group of people participating to create a community garden or something like that, right? Yep. And they're you know and and a couple people have drawn something. Out. I think we should plant. You know, we should plant this way and, and then a year goes by and well those seeds didn't work out so well let's plant these other things and one person in the group keeps insisting you know what i really think we should all get phds in botany before we carry this project <laughs> any forward in any further forward right and over time you might get frustrated with that person for for urging precisely the kind of like exterior knowledge or the enlarging of now that, that you were kind of which is the opposite of kind of what you're criticizing right i mean i could see easily people saying no the best way for us to do this is stick to our original plan maybe it'll work maybe it doesn't the stakes aren't so high we don't need to get phds in, in botany in order to in order to have this community garden and i could see you know and the argument here is that um we have a legislature which right. can do the kinds of things that, you know, they can call, you know, expert hearings, et cetera, et cetera. When we get to judges, we don't need them to apply that kind of expertise, maybe on Scalian type grounds, right? That they just basically need to channel democratic decision making, act in predictable ways in order to locate accountability in democratically responsive institutions, right? That's the the, the high minded justification for what looks like kind of dumb, dumb textualism is actually smart, smart location of responsibility, according, right? I mean, that's, and mm-hmm. so I, you could see that there, there's a reason to say judges, although you want them to be smart people and exercise judgment in some cases, uh, maybe should, should not try to be super smart in the ways that you're describing, should not be what Holmes says, you know, the statistician, the economist, et cetera. I, I'm not, I, I disagree with that, obviously, as you know, right? But I at least can see the argument that a more a persuasive argument or an argument attempt, attempting to persuade that we should constitute our judiciary in this way, according to these rules. Right. You know, and they don't include social science and they don't include these. Other, I don't buy it, but I can at least see why having that interjected in the debate is valuable in terms of cycling through what it is that constitutes our law. Uh, but again, you know, I disagree, which is why I think we need someone on here who can really, uh, who can really attack us on that. Maybe we should have Charles back for that one too. Maybe we can all get taken to the woodshed on, uh, by originalists on this. Sure. The, 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 the one thing I would say on that, about this question, which I think is interesting that Joe raised about, uh, you know, whether judges should be, uh, looking to other, you know, doing like Holmes said and become a master of economics or whatever. Um, it is, it's something I teach torts and I end up teaching a lot of economics and torts and get so frustrated when my students sort of say, well, you know, I went to law school because I'm not good at math. And I say, look, you all did fine on your LSATs. You can do this. This is not hard stuff. And don't give me that attitude of, ooh, I don't like math. You're sort of too old for that. So I'm sympathetic. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm very sympathetic to to that that attitude. And exactly what Christian is saying is, is, is what I'm encouraging, which is I just think it's an argument worth having because there are good arguments on both sides. I mean, one, one, another example of this I think is interesting is the whole debate about, you know, so-called naked statistic, statistical evidence and the use of, um, as a, as a source of evidence, 
uh, and whether whether there are problems with relying on statistical evidence um, and whether that should be incorporated or not. And there are good deb- there are good arguments on both sides. Um, the the, the uh, but I just think the debate should happen. The one I'm more interested in is because I, I'm more familiar with it is debates about history and about what kind of history is relevant to adjudication. There's very much a kind of uh, a common sense understanding of, oh, there's there are certain kinds of history that just aren't really relevant to what courts do. Courts are concerned with only a particular kind of internal sort of history. Uh, and it seems to me that there's no reason why that should necessarily uh, be the case. But that's just one, uh, that's just one example of, among many. And it seems to me that the arguments on the other side, like I think you're hissing at, hinting at, Christian, uh, although I'm not sure you mentioned it, is a, a question of legitimacy. Right? If you can't understand right. what it is that the judges are saying, then maybe that's a problem. Um, uh, so maybe ju- there's a, maybe there's a kind of uh, obligation on judges to use use a certain kind of language in justifying their opinions that that reasonable people can understand. Uh, on the other hand, maybe that's completely deeply unjust if it if it involves involves you know innocent people going to jail or or whatever the sort of negative consequence you can imagine. So it's, uh, there are b- arguments on both sides. It just seems to me that that's a debate sort of constantly worth happening having and is kind of really the only relevant debate in legal academia today. Mm-hmm. We have people, PhDs from so many discipline, different disciplines, right? You don't get that in lots of different areas of the law school. Lots of different people from different fields arguing about common subjects. And I feel like law schools should be taking advantage of that more than they do. Cool. Fascinating. This has been, this has been great, Charles. And uh, I, I apologize. And if any, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back through and, and, and get this ready to, to ship out. And I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm dreading the extent to which I may have misdirected the conversation. You know what I mean? It just feels like the kind of thing where you have so much to say in so many different directions and you just don't know. Yeah, no, it's hard. Um, it's hard. And, 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 and you organize the paper so well. I mean, I, I think the, <laughs> the paper is super clear, right? Cause you just, it, it's, it's like, cause it has the look of a, of a traditional law paper where I'm not, yeah, I've got this problem. I'm going to look at it through three different lenses. Right. And, and so it looks law review-y in that way, you know what I mean? And yet it is exactly the right approach to kind of teasing out what it means to say that something is our law. Well, let's look at what that, you know, there there are different ways of thinking about what it means to say our, and you just march through it, I think, in a very, in a very clear way. So I I would definitely commend the paper to people. In addition to, you know, looking at the, looking at all the Bowdoin-Sachs stuff as well. I think it's a fascinating debate, really fascinating And these very quickly become very deep, very provocative and and really engaging questions. At least that's how I, I it, how I respond to it. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm so delighted. It's the it's the first thing I've written that seemingly anyone has read. So it's it's nice. <laughs> uh, uh, so no, I, I'm I'm delighted that people are are interested in these questions. And as I said to those guys, to Bob Sachs, when I emailed it to them, you know, it's I, I credit them with with raising so many interesting questions that are kind of good meat for everyone to sink their teeth into. Yeah. And like we said, I mean, I didn't want to, you know, I'll repeat it one more time. It's exactly the kind of debate that law necessarily has to have. What's, yeah. what's in? What is our law? Like, that's a question we're always answering, isn't it? What is our law? Yeah, totally. Totally.